Right, looks like we're at time, so we'll go ahead and get started here. If you'll remember where we left off last week, we talked about the parable of the tenants and, you know, Jesus clearly speaking about the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all them, and calling them out as the ones who would, you know, reject the son whom the owner had sent in order that they would benefit and have that vineyard that wasn't in fact theirs, even though they thought it was all along. And so is with that that then Jesus identifies himself as the son, clearly, you know, identifies himself as the son of the owner there, sent his beloved son. If you recall, we talked about that. And so that's kind of, there's going to be a bookend here in Mark. And so that's one start of it. And then maybe today we'll get to Mark 12, 35 to 37, about David calling his son Lord and what that is all about. And so Jesus even more clearly identifying himself as the Messiah. And so we kind of got those two bookends of Jesus identifying himself in his divinity there. And then in the midst of that, we get all these teachings, these great teachings today of paying taxes, about the resurrection, angels, the commandments, and all the such. But before we get into any of that, we'll begin with invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, so we'll be picking up in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So if you recall, they previously tried, I don't know how many times, to try and trap Jesus get him in all these different questions and everything. And so now they're saying, well, let's send some scribes and, or some Pharisees and some of the Herodians. And for that, there's a marvelous few pages in our study Bible on page 1556 and 1557, where it lays out kind of all these different sects of like the God-fearers, the Hellenists, the Herodians, kind of all these different people and groups that you have. And so it kind of is a nice little quick reference of, okay, now who are those people and how do they line up with this other group and all of that? Because we all just kind of lump them together of, well, they're the bad guys or the chief priests or the scribes or the Pharisees. They're indistinguishable. But in the study Bible there, it gives some marvelous little or quick little guide of who these people are. And so the Herodians, it says, the dynasty of Herod the Great and its political supporters. Descendants of Herod ruled the region of Israel on behalf of the Romans from 63 BC to 100 AD. And so, again, just another reason to have a Lutheran study Bible if you don't plug it a little bit there. But, so that's who the Herodians are. So they sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And so that word agruo is used for like hunting, catching, kind of ensnaring him in his talk there. And so they're getting all the more desperate. As you'll remember, we're in Tuesday of Holy Week here. And so 
All his supporters are hanging on to his every word, you know, as he's teaching in the temple. And so they just need to get rid of this guy by any means necessary. And, well, his supporters aren't leaving him anytime soon. So now their next ploy is, well, let's get the Romans mad at him by talking about taxes and going against Caesar. So they came to him, moving on in verse uh, 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, what kind of flattery they're giving him. Teacher, you know, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. You're right, he doesn't care about your opinion, but you're going to give it anyways here. So they're not swayed by appearances. You notice that little mark, it talks about the Greek here, says literally, you do not look at people's faces. And so we've seen that all throughout Scripture, you know, with the anointing of David. You know, his father brings all these great sons, these wise and powerful and strong. He's like, we've got one more son. Oh, yeah, but he's like tending some sheep out in the field. Well, the Lord doesn't look at his outward appearances of his strength and his might, but rather what's inside his heart. So you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So the commentators note here kind of a double entendre used here. We talked, if you'll remember, about uh, the healing of blind Bartimaeus and how he was not yet on the way whenever he was blind, the way to everlasting life. He's kind of beside the way, and then Christ calls him to follow him and says he followed him, you know, on the way or on the road. And so we kind of made that distinction and pointed out how that's synonymous with, you know, the way to everlasting life. And so, but truly... Jesus, they're saying, teaches the way of God. And so, unbeknownst to them, they're actually speaking truth, even in kind of their flattery slash mockery of Jesus, much like Caiaphas, if you recall, in John 11 of, you know, it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. He's actually speaking a lot of truth there. He just didn't realize it in whenever he was speaking. But so they're building him up with all kinds of flattery. And then they really get to the question of, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not? Then Jesus, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, into God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So again, they're trying to ensnare him, much kind of like with what kind of baptism was with, you know, John the Baptist. Well, they knew they couldn't say one, because then all the people that follow John would be mad. But then if they said it was from God, then they'd just be acknowledging Jesus' own call to repentance. And John the Baptist even calling Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So they're kind of putting it back onto him of trying to trap him where no answer is a good answer. Because if you say, well, no, you know, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. 
Well, that's a surefire way to get rid of Jesus pretty quickly here. But if they say you should pay taxes to Caesar, all the people that hate the Roman occupation here, the supporters aren't really going to love that. And so what's Jesus to do here? But in his wisdom, he says, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they bring him this denarius and they ask, whose likeness and inscription is this? And so that word for likeness, it's the same word use of all creation, of us created in the image of God. Remember the trendy creation of let us make man in our own image and after our likeness. That same word used in the Greek versus the Hebrew, but in the Septuagint it's translated the same there. And so he's saying, whose likeness and inscription is this? And of course, Caesar's image and his inscription, his mark, is made on it. So Jesus says to them, render to Caesar. And that word apodidomi is to return. So return to Caesar that which is his, that which has his mark, that which is made after his own image. Return that to him. And return the things that are God's, the ones who have his image, his mark, his inscription and baptism. Return those things to God, for they are his. As we have this distinction that is made here of Jesus is kind of threading the needle here. of He's not saying, well, don't pay taxes to Caesar. Of course, you should obey the government, the authority that the Lord has put over you. As we see in, you know, the fourth commandment that extends beyond mothers and fathers, but honor those in authority, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. And so the Lord has put these people in authority over you. We have the right hand, left hand kingdom going on here, but it's still the hand of God there. No one is in authority by their own power. It's not put in power by God. And so honor them. Support them, pay taxes as you are supposed to, but the things that are God's return to God. Any questions so far? Am I losing anyone? Okay. The idea that, you know, whoever's holding office currently and state or national, you know, mm-hmm. Congress uh, is, has been placed there by God. That's, I just have to confess, that's, I, I resist that. I just feel like, well, that can't, I mean, ultimately it must be, but it just seems like they were elected by mm-hmm. ostensibly, you know, majority vote and I don't know, I just have to acknowledge that. I really fight against that. It gets back to if you were in the 8 o'clock class of, well, I was just kind of born into this family. It's just by happen chance that I was born into a family that brought me up in the Christian faith. And pastor was saying, well, no. You know, it's all by God that you've been placed in that family, placed in that situation. We brought up in the faith like that. And so even though we kind of want to say, well, you know, it's our doing that we brought, you know, this president and into office or anything. Nothing that isn't under God's control and his 
instruction, whether or not we like it or like the person or anything of that matter. You know, it is a hard pill to swallow, though, of, well, how is this, I'm not speaking specifically about the U.S., don't hear me wrong on that, but, you know, if you have a wicked ruler, how is it that, you know, that person is placed by God or how is there any kind of evil in this land or any of those questions? And at some point, again, above our pay grade of God is God, we're not. He has put them in power for whatever good he sees fit. And yes. um, I think he's, he has, his pro, Chris's problem is he needs to read that book, the Magnaberg Confessional, you know, where they address the issues, how you don't interpret the Bible like a Nazi. Yeah. It'll address those issues because that's what you're dealing with. And then to what extent then do you follow that authority? That's another thing of, you know, an acts of obey God and not man. And so that's where the distinction lies of, well, we follow them, even if we don't like it. We follow them because they're placed by God in authority until the time comes when it goes against God's teaching. Then we follow God rather than man there. And so that's, again, kind of a, another hard pill to swallow. When do you, what's against God's law directly? When is it forcing us to go against God's word? Or when are they just permitting actions that are against God's word of abortion, homosexuality, all these things? You know, we obviously don't support, we teach against that boldly, but until that time when they, you know, force it upon us of you must, you know, abort your child or something like that, then that is clearly against, you know, follow God rather than man there. You mentioned the Nazis. So, I mean, (laughs) uh, let's, I could say, uh, you know, um, (laughs) accepting the idea that, that Hitler was placed there by God or that Stalin was placed in office by God. I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, God allowed it, but another thing to say, God chose it. I, I'm, I sort of feel like, well, maybe I could go with it. He allowed it, but chose it? I guess that would be to persecute and to refine us by fire. I mean, that's... Yeah, I mean, I God know. sends forth judgment. I mean, in, even in our Texas morning in church of, you know... Lord very clearly is sending the drought and the famine and all these things against the wicked people. And so, you know, it is kind of hard to wrestle with that idea of him sending that drought or placing this person in authority, but God's God, we're not, and we go forth. Any other thoughts? Uh, so where would you say that leaves civil disobedience? Because we see in Acts where they, you know, they do things that end up in prison, mm-hmm. cause problems. They're not always following the rules. Mm-hmm. So how do you triangulate that? Oh, can you think of a specific instance in Acts? I'm trying to recall one off the top of my head. Of 
the civil disobedience. Yeah, weren't they told you? Yeah, because that's going against. That would be a. That would be one of those things where it's not the government permitting wicked acts to happen, but commanding that you don't proclaim God's word or don't gather in church or don't do any of those things. Then that's where the disobedience to the civil government, you know, would come up as necessary for that. Yes, because it says in Scripture, it says the government has the sword, but it's for righteousness. Mm -hmm. So when they're using it for unrighteousness, then you have a problem. And that's what you have to go back to Scripture Mm -hmm. to tell them what is their authority. That's why I mentioned the Magdeburg Confessionals, because that addresses those issues long before we have it here now. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, parents, they're placed over their children. They're answerable to God for those under their care. Pastors, likewise, answerable to those under their care. The rulers, answerable to those under their care. And so they've been placed under author- over us in authority, but they still have someone they have to answer to for that. And so it's necessary for us to teach them, admonish them to be godly rulers, to uphold the teachings of Scripture in a faithful manner, to pray for them even if we don't like them. And, you know, all throughout, over the decades, the prayers of the churches, no matter who's in office, Republican, Democrat, whoever, it's to pray for them. And so we continue in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Just add a couple thoughts. Um, in Romans 13, where Paul has Christians submitting to the civil authorities, he gives their job description, mm-hmm. punishing the evil and rewarding the good. And that's in accordance with the natural law that's written on human hearts and reflects God's own morality. So that's our default position. But of course, as corrupt governments or leaders are wont to do from time to time, they start to reward the evil and punish the good. And the, the scriptures, as well as church history, are filled with examples of civil disobedience where the government is commanding something that God forbids or forbidding something that God commands. And there we have a duty to recognize that they're, they're not fulfilling the office that God has given. This individual man or these people are not fulfilling the office of authority that God has given. And then all that has to be determined is to what degree do we civilly resist or civilly disobey. So in some cases, that's obvious or passive. and other cases, it's resistance with the mouth or even with deeds. Um, think of one example that I just recently quoted. I think it's Chrysostom, although this probably happened more than once, because as something like this happens once, it becomes a pattern. And that is, the state decided it was time to pilfer the coffers of the church, under, you know, whatever legal code it dreamt up. So said to the church leaders, hey, you've got to give us your treasures. We want all the treasury of the church handed over, you know, by 8 a.m. on Monday. They said, okay, great. So they gathered together all the poor, 
They said, here are the treasures of the church. Here are the true riches of Christ's kingdom. So while driving home a spiritual point, simultaneously a matter of civil disobedience and saying, you're way outstepping your bounds here. This doesn't belong to you. It's, it's theft, even if the government's doing it. So the document that Chris is referencing, the Marburg Confession, is helpful because it's within the Lutheran tradition, within the post-Reformation tradition, but not that that necessarily matters so much. It just lends itself to our own frame as Lutherans. What it really seeks to do is try to make distinctions and articulate, okay, first we need to assess the level of tyranny that we're dealing with, this individual or this administration. Far are they overstepping their bounds? And then we need to correlate our behavior to that. So if it's some minor things, we let it go. We pray for them. We bear it. We don't, we don't obviously engage in sin. But when, when there are certain miscarriages of justice, it doesn't immediately mean we rebel in word. It kind of goes down the line from word to maybe even vociferous to action all the way to, um, un- under certain circumstances, even taking up arms to defend our neighbor. You can imagine some scenarios in which that would be required, and I believe the city of Marburg uh, experienced that as the government came and tried to crush them. They took up arms uh, to defend the weak in their midst, to defend their neighbors, so even unto that level. So hopefully that, hopefully that just works to give a little more data to those sitting here and whoever might be listening and online, that there's sort of a rich history and a rich tapestry and a lot of data we draw on when we make these kinds of statements. Anything else? Okay. So after Jesus says this, just says they marveled at him. So who is the they? Is that the Pharisees, the Herodians, or the other crowd? Probably the Herodians and those that were asking him. And they just marveled at what he had said. So then we, and then now the Sadducees came to him in verse 18, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote, actually, well, back up a bit, that gets us into a whole other territory. But so the Sadducees, they're saying that there's no resurrection. So then that refers, we get more of that scene in, was it Acts 23? It's talking about the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection, nor angels, or spirits, or anything like that. So they reject all of those things. The Pharisees, they're good with all those. They accept the resurrection, angels, and all that. And so we have that frame of reference of the Sadducees who claim there's no resurrection. So they're coming to Jesus, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. So what an absurd 
question and illustration of just taking it to the nth degree of, say there's seven, seven brothers. And, I mean, just even though this is probably a fictional illustration that they're giving, who knows, it could have actually happened. But if you're the seven, seventh brother, what would you be thinking seeing your six other brothers die after you marry this woman? <laughs> I don't know if I want to take her as wife of seeing what happened to all the other guys. But anyways, he still takes her as his wife, and no children or anything, and so both of them die. Now they pose the question of, you know, whose wife will she be? The seven had her as wife. And so this teaching that they're referencing here is in Deuteronomy 25 of the Lord speaking about that of, you know, to carry on the name of the brother to then take you know, take his wife if he should die without any children in order that his name would be, would be carried on. And so, of course, since they don't believe in the resurrection, their comment in 23 of, in the resurrection when they rise again, whose wife will she be? The seven had her as wife. It's not really a question that they're really wanting to answer for. They're just trying to mock him and, you know, show the absurdity of his, of his teaching, supposedly. So they don't believe that, you know, any kind of resurrection will happen like that, and so then they can just mock him and say, well, whose wife would, will she be? Or they, the seven had her as wife. So then Jesus said to them, is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And Jesus just isn't pointing punches here in Holy Week of reason you don't get this is because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And then also at the end, you're quite wrong. How fun is that? Of him just blatantly laying it out of, no, you're just, you're quite wrong. Not even just kind of wrong. You're quite wrong on this. So they know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So the power of God being his power to raise the dead in the resurrection. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so, what he is talking about here, so, at death, sorry to break it to you, marriage does not last forever in all eternity. We took vows and it was, till death us do part, as it is in the LSB, or till death do us part and everywhere else, which always trips me up of the order of that. But so, marriage does not continue in heaven. Because remember, it's all a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. And so, here, our earthly view of marriage, like the earthly fathers, shepherd and sheep and all these things, it's only kind of a foretaste of the good shepherd, your true heavenly father, you know, the great groom who is faithful to his bride, the church. And so in heaven, then, 
the earthly bond of marriage is, you know, you don't need it anymore because you're in the presence of the great bridegroom and you are his church. So it's not to say that you're not going to recognize those in heaven or anything like that. It's just the physical bond of marriage. It's till death us do part. So then Jesus makes a comparison here of in heaven you will be like angels. Key word there, like angels. You're also not going to have little wings and white robes and, well, white robes washed clean in the blood of the Lamb, yes, but the picture of angels and playing on a harp and the clouds and all that. You're not going to become angels, for angels are created beings, created within the six days of creation. We see the Lord talking about that in Psalm, what was it? Psalm 148. He speaks about all of these things that he created and thrown in there is also the angels, along with heaven and earth and all these things. So these angels are created beings, and so in heaven we will be like them, but not angels. We will not be married or given in a marriage because angels also are not married or given in marriage. There's no little baby angels floating around with little bows and arrows, shooting love darts or anything like that. So we will be like them in heaven, meaning that no, we will not be given in marriage in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Isaac, or I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So it's just marvelous here how he could have gone anywhere else in Scripture. I mean, Scripture speaks of the resurrection all over the place. But the Sadducees come and they bring the Pentateuch to him and pose that question using Deuteronomy there. So then he turns it right back on them of, well, you, you're quoting Moses. What, what happened over here that Moses also wrote that God is God, the God of the living, meaning God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are not dead. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living here. So he's kind of putting it back on them of, you know, well, Moses is also teaching this, and so don't try to twist his words and try to say, well, he taught this of, you know, husbands die, no children, then the brother takes him and all that, and so, therefore, there must no, be no resurrection or anything like that, you know. Let's just close our ears, close our eyes and everything, and reject all of the rest of Scripture and come to this absurd conclusion that there's no resurrection there. And so, Lord, you know, he's bringing back Moses and putting it right back before them of, that God is the God of the living and not of the dead. And so God is, not God was the God of the living back when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive, but he is the God of the living. And so whenever you die, you're not dead, but more fully alive. Your bodies will be dead. Bodies will be in the grave, as all those who have gone before us. But when you die, you'll be even more alive than you ever have been. 
you're kind of rele- you're released from the sinful flesh that weighs you down, that has achy knees and hard time getting up in the morning and all those things, and be made even more fully alive than you ever have been. So God is the God of the living. Again, just so funny at the end of, you're quite wrong. Just him laying it right out there. If he's getting even more bold here, even though in Mark, you know, he portrays Jesus not kind of as a little meek and mild Messiah, but as one that comes in guns blazing and isn't afraid to say what he thinks here. But just the, the ability here of him to say that you are quite wrong, showing that, you know, in Scripture there isn't multiple interpretations of, well, Scripture could go yay for the resurrection or nay for the resurrection, depending on how you look at it. You know, it's kind of ambiguous of, well, no, Scripture t- clearly teaches there is a resurrection. And so to teach otherwise means that you're subtracting all the other places in Scripture that speak of the resurrection to try to build up your own false idea of what Scripture supposedly teaches, that there is no resurrection. Likewise, there's also the other error of adding to Scripture. And so we saw that back in Mark 10 with let the little children come to me and talked about infant baptism at length there. And so how Scripture isn't concerned about the age of those baptized. It says, baptize all nations, even upholds children as the prime example of, you know, to such belongs the kingdom of God. And so then all these other churches that say, you know, we have to be 6, 13, whatever the fluctuating age of accountability is, they're adding to Scripture something that isn't there in the first place. And so both, there's dangers on both sides of subtracting or adding to Scripture there. But there is a clear teaching there of even Christ himself saying, you're quite wrong, shows that there is a right or a wrong interpretation of Scripture. It's not kind of left up in the air of, well, is it really Christ's body and blood? Is it not? Well, it kind of depends on how you, how you view it. So anything's right. You know, it's all about Jesus after all, and none of this other stuff really matters. And so we can just interpret it how we want. It's grave danger here. So, Any thoughts on this passage? Some of these are fairly, kind of fairly straightforward. The other thing is it's just... Says you're quite wrong. I think he was being very nice to them because mm-hmm. he could quote a lot of other passages and tell them you're just plain stupid. So I'm thinking Jesus is really nice. He put everything in the kindest possible way. Yeah. The living. Yeah, it is like Paulus, like greatly wrong. Hmm. Paulus, Paulus. 
muchly wrong. I don't know how you'd yeah, how you do a wooden translation. But it is a fun kind of alliteration of palu planus there, of just kind of the playing on. It kind of rolls off the tongue there of. Yeah, because he could, he Jesus could have brought up several other instances, you know, like Elijah, and and then the thing with King Saul. So, I mean, that's what I'm saying. He's being very nice here. Mm -hmm. These people are just dumb. I thought you'd like verse 27, Chris. Like that Jesus side coming out of him of you're quite wrong. Yeah, I mean, he could have gone, I mean, could have said how much time you got, you know. And lay out all the scripture that speaks of the resurrection. But again, he's kind of giving it right back to them of, you're quoting the Pentateuch here, so I'm quoting it right back to you of, you forgot about the whole burning bush thing where the, you know, the Lord gives his name. Kind, kind of a big deal for you guys. You know. And what did he say there about living? Hmm. Any other thoughts? It, do you think it's true that there, it might be like a common assumption? I'm, maybe I'm just projecting here, but this question of, you know, will I be, continue to be married when I rise again, I sort of think maybe I'm not alone in sort of thinking, oh, wow, that's, that's another hard one to kind of deal with, you know, like, and does that also mean I won't be my child's father or my mother's son or, I mean, it will, it, all of that will be fundamentally changed, I have to, but yeah, I just I wonder. Mean, be, I'm saying, yeah, neither married nor given in marriage, again, the bond of marriage is here on earth until you know, death us do part. And in you know, the new heavens and new earth, it's just, I mean, we can't even fathom the great glory of that, of what that's going to be, you know. Yeah. Even the foretaste that we have in the Lord's Supper being gathered around there, it's just pales in comparison to, you know. Yeah. Our sinful brains can't even fathom what that yeah. is. Yeah. I'm just wondering how, how commonly... Uh, people tend to think about that, or if, or if, if people, I mean, is that, I'm still new to the Lutheran faith, but mm-hmm. is that, everybody has that understanding? I mean, it is kind of, it's hard because when people are going through grief or any of these things, there's kind of those things that people always say of, well, they're an angel now, or, you know, having gained another angel, kind of all those little cliches that people always speak of and in the moment you're not going to you know be theologically correcting them you know in the moment of grief or anything like that but it also doesn't mean that they're correct in those things and so i think kind of as a it's also a hard pill to swallow of what do you mean i'm not going to be you know married to my spouse who you know is the love of my life here on earth you know what i mean it's a hard it's a hard thing to swallow and again it's not that we're not going to know them or you know we're going to know those who are in heaven there but it's just that that bond that the two become one you know there's an earthly picture of that which is to come yeah absolutely Commonly understood of marriage not continuing, or yeah, I think most people think, oh, I get 
Yeah, so Esther has a little more experience. So in the, in the dogmatic tradition of the interpretation of this verse, there is, properly speaking, an open question here. And, a, and it is predicated upon this point. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So someone who wants to see uh, here a continuation of our earthly marriages um, will we'll point that out and say, um, from that point forward, there are new, no new marriages contracted, just as there are no new children procreated. Um, but this verse couldn't be used to preclude that necessarily. So that's where, it, that's where it's an open question. But I think Vicar is speaking the sort of majority opinion. And the majority opinion, majority opinion really kind of properly works like this. Do you remember how in the earlier class we talked about um, the marriage feast of the Lamb and his bride, the church, in God's mind before the foundations of the world? Thus he creates husband and wife to reflect that reality. Well, upon the bodily resurrection and our marriage to Christ, the point isn't so much that you won't be married to your spouse, you should be married to your spouse and everyone else and Christ combined in an absolutely blessed union that our earthly marriages were just a foretaste of, and after the fact will just be a shadow of the profound reality that we all share. So that would be a way to, it's not like you're losing. It's not like there's going to be sorrow, like, oh, I, I, I'm lacking the special relationship with this person I once had. Um, plus, I would just add to that one more point, and that's that even though we're in heaven, um, and we're all children of the Father, there's still a sense in which, yeah, but during this age, James, Genevieve, you were my children, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so God's not one to just obliterate those, those, um, what, what occurred in this age and in this life. So those, e- even, even in this latter opinion, what I'm calling the majority opinion, um, there's, this, there's not a sense in which it's an erasure of the important relationships and the unique relationships we have. So you're, in other words, then just to summarize, you're free to hold that you'll continue to be married in heaven. You're free to hold that you won't be. And obviously one is correct and one's incorrect, and we'll see. <laughs> but, e- but either way, it's also ultimately immaterial because nobody's denying any of the chief tenets of the faith or the chief tenets of what it means to um, be raised in our bodies and be all united as one with, together and with Christ. Whoa there, Chris. There was one note here in the bottom of our the study Bible, a quote from Luther's works about this. And it was just a marvelous quote that he written in verse 27, the note on that. When I behold the corpse carried out and buried, it is hard to go on my way and believe and think that we will someday rise together. How so or by what power, not by myself or by virtue of any merit on earth, but by this one Christ. And that is indeed certain, far more certain than the fact that I will be buried and see someone else buried, which I know with certainty and behold with my eyes. Just another marvelous quote by Luther there.
Any other thoughts on this passage before we move on? Okay. So now they continue on. And so one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. So we kind of heard all the commotion of going, going on. And seeing that he answered, that being Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe comes up to Jesus. You know, he had seen kind of Jesus lay it on the Sadducees of, you're quite wrong of all these beliefs that you hold. So he sees them, and then he's asking them, he asks Jesus a question. So it kind of depends on how we're, the question is how we're to take his question of, is he trying to test Jesus again, like all those previously? Is he just generally curious? Is it just kind of a philosophical question? You know, even at the seminary, we love asking those random questions of, I'm not even going, going to go into some of the absurd philosophical questions, but just kind of a fun sport of, well, hypothetically, how is this, you know, what's the greatest of the commandments, and how are we to, how are we to come up with the most important of them all? And so, I mean, it's likely one of those latter ones. Could take it kind of as a sense of him trying to trap him, but him kind of being secluded from all the others, you know, it's not kind of the gaggle of the scribes coming along and, hey, you go ask Jesus this one question and, you know, trip him up or something like that. Seems like it's more coming out of a genuine nature or kind of a philosophical, not something necessarily evil intent behind it, but it's kind of left open there. So then Jesus answering them, gets him what seems like not one, but two commandments and and doesn't always answer how we think he's going to answer. You think that he'd either give one or just not even answer the question and kind of turn it back to them as he's done in the past. But he gives them two separate commandments, and we see them both kind of join together in this one way that we'll get to here in a moment. But he says, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So this is called like the Shema of the Old Testament, something well known to all the Jews. You know, you'd be repeating it, I don't know how many times a day or whatever their laws were in that day. But that was their commandment of, you know, this great gospel thereof. Hear, O Israel, you know, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. So we have that great gospel thereof, the Lord being Yahweh is our God. And we claim him as our own. We call upon him as our God. We have that his name given to us there. So then you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And so that's very familiar, always repeated for us and the commandment to do all these things, even though we know we don't love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. 
even every minute of the day we fail at one or multiple of those, it seems like. He gives that commandment, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment, singular, greater than these. So he's kind of joining these two together of how are we to think of of the two tables of the law, love of God, love of neighbor. What's one without the other there? Of, why, Lord, you know, I kept commandments one through three through all my life, so I'm good on that, but four through ten, nah, don't need any of those. No, the Lord gave us the entirety of the commandments to love God and love neighbor. So we're not to separate those and think of, you know, one through three is the only ones that matter, and four through ten, yeah, if you can keep them, great. If not, eh, doesn't matter. He's elevating both of them of love God, love neighbor. So there's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So scribe gives a pretty good, pretty good reaction to what Jesus had just said of. Yeah, you're you're kind of dead on here, Jesus, you know, or teacher, as he says. You know, you've truly said that he is one, and there's no other besides him. And that, you know, all these things to love the Lord and love of neighbor is much more than, you know, all these burnt offerings. And so gives a rather profound response to Jesus here. Then Jesus said Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, and he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that no one dared to ask him any more questions. Well for all that great response that he gave, you're not far off but not quite in the kingdom of God, he doesn't say. So you're not far from the kingdom of God. And so why is that? I mean, if you recall of the rich young man of, you know, what must I do to be saved? Yeah, sell everything. And what was his focus of what am I going to do? What must I do to be saved? His focus here is on these commandments to, you know, earn favor, to merit his own salvation here. So even though he has a correct understanding of this, of even that the Lord is one in all these things, his focus is still kind of placed on that. And so the Lord's saying, you're not far off. You're still missing, you're still missing something here. And so then after that, you know, no one dared ask him any more questions. We'll see then here in a few moments that Jesus turns the table and instead asks them a question. With that, are there any questions? Yeah, yeah so, so Jesus says the Lord is one, mm-hmm. and the scribe replies, truly, there is only one. Um, and he concludes, he said, you are wise. That's pretty much right. Um, 
What's a good explanation of why he didn't use that opportunity to bring up the Trinity? Hmm. It's a wise question. Hmm? Let's see. Why is it they didn't bring up the Trinity here? Kind of a. I see your point here. Yeah, because the scribe would expect, you know, that God is one. They wouldn't expect the three person situation. Yeah. It seemed like a good time to clarify it. I mean, all throughout, I mean, he's proclaiming of he and the Father are one. And so he's not shying away from that in totality here. And well, actually, before I answer your question fully, let's move on to 35 to 37 and then kind of get that. I think that may kind of help answer the question here. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, maybe that's why he said you're not far because, because of that stipulation. But my thing was, you were saying they're, they're both elevated, but he does say the most important is, and then he says mm-hmm. there's a second, so. Yeah. What are we to make of that? I mean. I mean, that, that is the foundation of which everything else is based. You know what I mean? Of the Lord is one. But he's not saying that's the most important and to exclude everything else here. He's still elevating the others along sort of, with that. Other. Sort of like get the order right. So in other words, don't just love your neighbor as yourself and, with, and then forget the first. Yeah. And likewise, don't just, you know, get the first one right and forget everything else. Because his question is, which was the most important of all? And so he's answering that, but also to elevate all the others and to not say, well, just focus on this one and kind of forget, forget everything else. Yeah. Like the, the, the fruit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So get to the question, moving on to 35 to 37. So as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So he's continuing on again, same day. This is Holy Tuesday of Holy Week here. So he's teaching in the temple, and so kind of to that, to that point here, he's asking, okay, who, would, who am I? If David calls him Lord, and he is David's son, how is David's son, his Lord, how does, that, how does that line up? Well, chiefly it's because by birth he is David's son. You know, through the lineage, through the bloodline, he is David's son. But then, even before the foundations of the world, he was the Lord. And so he's bringing at least the two persons of the Trinity here, of the Father-Son relationship, or the divinity and humanity of Christ in relation then to the Father, the Lord said to my Lord, there, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? And the great throng doesn't answer him, but they heard him gladly here. And so I guess you're, I don't know, to get back to the question of why he doesn't use this as an opportunity, I mean, he's all throughout his ministry, he has been proclaiming these truths. Kind of no one, there's a lot of people that don't want anything to do with that. So now we're closing in on 
Holy Week, his crucifixion, his resurrection, soon coming in. And so here it's all about that call to repentance here. So he's dogmatically taught all along of I and the Father are one and all these, all these truths here. But his focus here as he's nearing that is, you know, this is, about what, this is what's about to take place. Repent. Don't be like the tenants in the vineyard that, you know, kill the son in order to get the vineyard and all these things. And so that would be my guess. I mean, again, the Lord saw it fit to not teach there at that moment about it. But there's any other insights of why possibly I'd be open to anything. But, but they also the book of Job, and Job asked the question, I need an advocate. So there's no excuse for them not. These these people read the book, and if I read the book and understand that, they need to understand that they can't be that dumb, you know. Yeah, I mean, we have this mindset of since the Trinity isn't the word Trinity isn't used in Scripture, therefore it's just kind of a man-made later construction, you know, several hundred years after Christ and all that. I mean, even Luther talks about if you want a clear teaching on the Trinity, go nowhere else than creation itself. You have all three persons. And so it's not even like, well, Christ comes on the scene and then everything else after that. Well, now we kind of start talking about this whole Trinity thing. It's all throughout Scripture. Scripture professes and teaches of the Trinity all throughout. And so, yeah, I mean, they know they know the Scriptures well, although Jesus himself says they neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. So they don't quite, quite get what Scripture teaches, even though they think they do. And so, I mean, it's, it is taught all throughout there. Don't know if we're going to have time to go into Jesus admonishing them to beware of the scribes, even though he just asked or talked to the scribes here. But so we'll pick up with that next week and then look at the widow's offering and then the destruction of the temple and the close of the age. So again, we're nearing closer and closer to the Passion. So we'll be picking up that probably here in a few weeks. We'll get to that portion of Mark's Gospel. But if there's nothing else, what are the last thoughts? Right. The Lord be with you.